0: It does look like you have a sudden urge to square dance. (laughs) That's a good song, isn't it? Like that. I've never square danced before. Maybe we should start a square dancing outreach. (laughs) Somebody said amen. Somebody just somebody just volunteered to lead it. Excellent. Excellent. Why don't we turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8? If you're visiting with us this morning, our pattern is typically to work straight through entire books of the Bible, studying them verse by verse. We're doing something a little bit different in this series for the fall, and that is we are looking just at one chapter of a book of the Bible, that chapter being Romans 8. Many people believe and would argue that this is the greatest chapter in all of Scripture. I don't know how you really determine that. But it's a really good one, that's for sure, and one that we hope to learn much from uh, as we make our way through. So Romans chapter 8, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 11 as we begin. Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we come before You with our Bibles open this morning, it's our desire that You, by the Holy Spirit, would give us understanding. Not an understanding that simply fills the mind, but an understanding that fills our hearts and our affections for Jesus. The kind of understanding that takes us into the depths of the Gospel and transforms our lives from there. We pray that as we examine Your Word, as we read Your Word, That you would make it live to us, make us reflect more perfectly the image of Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ralph Waldo Emerson is famous for having said, Sow a thought and you reap an action, sow an act and you reap a habit, sow a habit and you reap a character, sow a character, and you reap a destiny. It's no secret why this quote would be a favorite of preachers and inspirational thinkers and speakers alike. It's a short, pithy way of saying that what happens in my mind eventually shapes my behavior, which eventually forms habits, forging a character and ultimately dictating a destiny. And it's helpful because it's true, at least mostly, but not fully. The question that we want to ask this morning from Romans chapter 8 is, would Paul agree with Emerson? Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an action, reap a habit. And so forth. As we look at the text in front of us in verse 7, it seems as though Paul is arguing along the same lines as Emerson. For the mind, Paul writes, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. It cannot. But on further reflection as we make our way through this passage, what we're going to see Paul do is like a master remodeler. He's going to rearrange some of the elements of Emerson's quote and remove some elements altogether. What we find in the passage in front of us is that Paul might simply say, sow a character and you reap a mind, sow a mind and you reap a destiny. Who we are at the most fundamental level impacts the way that we think, the trajectory of our lives, and ultimately the finality of our destination. Where are we going to spend eternity? But let's not be misled here to think that there is some power in any of us that will change the way that we think or change our character or change our destiny. What we're talking about this morning are issues of eternal significance. And the only way that you and I are able to have confidence in the destiny that we have been given is if, in fact, we have been given a new destiny. We might say simply that in order to have a new destiny, God Himself has to sow a new character within us so that we might reap a new mind and ultimately a new destiny. Now, if we look at the passage one more time, we see in verse 6 what seems to be really the theme of the entire passage. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If you're looking for sort of a big idea of Romans 8, 5 to 11, it's this, that being in the flesh leads to death, while being in the Spirit leads to life. Simple. Now what Paul does to force this issue is he first tells us in verses 5 and 6 that there are only two types of people in the world, those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. Then in verses 7 and 8, he comes back around to explain why to be in the flesh is ultimately death. And then in verses 9 to 11, he explains why ultimately being in the Spirit is life and peace. Now just to refresh our memories about where we're at here in the letter of Paul to the Romans, chapters 1 through 4, Paul's argument is that every human person, Jew and Gentile alike, is guilty and accountable before the holiness of God. And so therefore, there must be another way, a different way altogether for men and women to be made right with God, and that is through Jesus. Through faith in Jesus alone, we are not condemned, we're acquitted of our sins, and we are declared righteous, seen as being clothed with the perfection of Jesus himself. And now in 5 through 8 of Romans, Paul is explaining to us what it looks like to live a life under grace. Here in Romans 8, verses 1 through 17, really, he's explaining that to live a life under grace is to live a life by the Spirit. And boy, does life by the Spirit look different than what many of us might think. Because life by the Spirit, according to Paul, is a life of quietness and peace and security in the Gospel of Jesus. He said at the end of verse 4 that God's great purpose in delivering us from the penalty and the power of sin is that we might now, through faith in Jesus, fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Those of us, he says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So here we go. There are only two types of people in the world. That's point one. I wonder how many times you've heard a conversation begin with, you know, there are really only two types of people in this world. We have a gift at distinguishing between types of people. And most of the time, these these groups that we place people in are trivial. People are either young or old, rich or poor. Poor. We might say there are only two types of people in this world, Democrat or Republican, Apple or Samsung, Fox News or CNN, cat people or dog people. Where I'm from, up until about 20 minutes ago, there used to be two types of people, Tyrod Taylor people and Baker Mayfield people. But don't worry, Baker's the starter, so everybody now in Cleveland is happy. But you understand the point. We have a gift at distinguishing between people and putting people in categories. But none of these distinguishing uh, categories that we create for people are ultimately fundamental. Paul here tells us that there are two types of people in this world at the most fundamental, primary, and profound level. Those, he says, verse 5, who, quote, live according to the flesh, and those who, quote, live according to the Spirit. Flesh, Spirit. Now, I don't love the word live here in verse 5. You say that's none of your business, you didn't write Romans and you should be very happy that I didn't. But in the original language, the word live isn't there. If you have a New American Standard Bible, for instance, you'll read that the text says, those who are according, who are according to the flesh, and those who are according to the Spirit. We're talking not about who or what I do, we're talking about who I am. So a character. Now, what does it mean to be according to the flesh? It's a strange way to describe people, to be of the flesh or after the flesh. One of the best dictionaries of the Greek language says this about Paul's use of flesh or sarx in Greek. In Paul's thought especially, all parts of the body constitute a totality known as sarks or flesh, which is, hear this, dominated by sin, to such a degree that wherever flesh is, all forms of sin are likewise present, and no good thing can live in the flesh. Douglas Moo, a commentator on the book of Romans, puts it this way, the flesh is the, quote, this worldly orientation that all people share. So here we have it. There are some people in this world who are according to The flesh. They are dominated by sin. They live in the realm of this world. They are opposed to and hostile to God. They are, whether they acknowledge it or not, enslaved to sin and disobedience, according to the flesh. On the other hand, there are those, Paul says, who are according to the Spirit, That is to say that through faith in Jesus Christ, they have been given the purchased gift of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. They've been brought out of death and into life, transferred from life in the flesh into life in the Spirit. Sometimes we think about flesh and spirit as these two warring parties in the soul of a believer, and that's partially true. But here for Paul, you are either of the flesh or you are of the Spirit. You are either, to put it simply, outside of Christ or in Christ. Unregenerate or regenerate. And this is the only distinction uh, distinction among human persons that really amounts to anything. Eternally, significantly, unregenerate or regenerate. Now, out of the character here of being in the flesh or being the Spirit, you see that there is a mindset. For those who are or live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who are of the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We ought to think about minds here as the totality of a person. My intellect, my heart, my affections, the things that I love and value and cherish, the things that I turn away from in disgust. Paul says, where you reside, either in the flesh or in the Spirit, dictates the course of your entire life. If I remain outside of Christ, my mind, my heart, my affections will remain opposed to Christ. If I'm in the Spirit, my mind, my heart, my affections will be along the trajectory of the things of the Spirit and of Christ. And from this mindset, Paul says, we reap a destiny. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. There are only really two types of people in this world. Now, Paul has told us that the destiny that awaits those who are in the flesh is death, and the question we want to ask is, why? Why? For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Verse 7, for or because the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Secondly, we see that the flesh is death. And the reason that the flesh is death, in a word, is the word hostility. Now, what we have to say here from the Bible is striking, it's startling, it's painful, and should be thought about and preached about with tears in our eyes. I want you to notice here, in verses 7 and 8, the absolute hopelessness of a life lived outside of Jesus. The mind that is set on the flesh is Hostile. Notice that Paul does not say that the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is outside of Jesus, is neutral. He says hostile, at enmity with, at war with, is an enemy of God. Now how does this manifest itself? Well, you'll notice from the Bible exactly what Paul says. It manifests itself in the unregenerate attitude towards the law of God. It is at enmity, at war, opposed to God. Why? It does not submit to God's law. I can remember when I was a child, there being this story of a young man who had visited in Singapore. And while he was there, he spit his gum out on the sidewalk. And they arrested him for it. And his punishment was that he was to be caned. Now, from the American perspective, that's a bit harsh. But from the perspective of those in Singapore, to go to another country and to blatantly disregard their law is an act of hostility. It's an act of rebellion. And so, too, is it also true with the Lord We show our enmity, our hostility towards God by not submitting to God's law. This is what it's like to live in the flesh. For your consideration, Paul in Romans 7 says, verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, this realm opposed to God, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul says the moment we were confronted with God's law while we were in the flesh, immediately we began our plans to break it. Hostility. Romans 7, 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. That is, that the law is good, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. In other words, I'm a slave to disobedience. Romans 7, verse 18, for I know, Paul says, that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. Here's the problem: hostility to God. Now I want you to notice as well that what we're dealing with here is not simply an unwillingness to obey, it's an absolute and utter inability to obey. It does not submit to God's law, Paul says. Indeed, it cannot. It's unable. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The writer to the Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. And what we're talking about here is a theological concept that often is called total depravity. Now, that doesn't mean I'm as bad as I could be, but it does mean that it's impossible for me to be as good as I should be. Doug Moo, again, explains this idea by saying that total depravity does not mean that all people are as evil as they possibly could be that all people commit every possible sin, nor does it deny that there is knowledge of the good in each person. What is meant, rather, is that every person apart from Christ is thoroughly in the grip of the power of sin and that this power extends to all the person's faculties. To be outside of Christ is to have sin infecting my mind, my heart, my will, my actions, my attitudes. Sin is everywhere. As a thought experiment, let's imagine for a moment that I have two bottles here up at the pulpit. In one bottle, I have pure, undiluted poison. Would you drink it? No. Very often we think about, when we're talking about total depravity and an inability to obey, that every person is like that bottle of poison. Completely and undilutedly bad. But imagine for a moment that I have a a bottle of pure spring water. And I open it up and I dump a little bit out and then I fill that spot up with poison and shake it up. Would you drink that? No. You're no fool. You know that at that point, though diluted, the poison has infected every last fluid ounce of the bottle of water. So it is with sin and the life of those who are outside of Christ. Now, let's just bring this down for a moment. If you are a follower of Jesus here this morning, I want you to understand the hopelessness that you have been rescued from. It is not simply, understand me, that you had a few sins that you needed cleared up in order for you to get eternal life. Your problem was so desperate that you were completely infected by sin in every part of your being. And in order to be saved from a destiny of death and separation from God, God had to come in and sow a new character, new mindset, new destiny through Jesus. Consider for a moment the implications of what Paul says here for the believer. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That is to say then that if you are in the Spirit, your mind is no longer hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. That is to say, by implication, if you are in the Spirit, you may now choose to obey God's law. And thirdly, and finally, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, therefore the implication is those who are in the Spirit can. You've been rescued from an impossibly hopeless situation. Praise the Savior this morning. Now, for others of us, we're here this morning and we have been trying our darndest to do something that God himself tells us is absolutely impossible. Some of us here this morning are the most morally good people in all of Lawrence County, hoping against hope that somehow, some way. If our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, that will strong-arm the Lord into accepting us when all things are considered. See here, one of our core values at First Baptist Church is preaching God's Word because we want God to have their microphone. And it is a fearful thing, dear friend, to be attempting to do something that God says you can't. God says you cannot please me in the flesh. God says I will not be pleased with anyone outside of a faith in Jesus. So enough with the treadmill of trying to establish my own righteousness through obedience when God says I can't. There has to be a better way. A new way. A way that is enlivened, empowered, and secured by the Spirit. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If the flesh is death, Paul says, the, the Spirit is life and peace. The Spirit given as a gift by Christ Himself to all of His people, bringing us, transferring us from the flesh into the realm of the Spirit where life and peace reign. You, however, verse 9, Paul says, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, we might say since, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. There are two types of people. Those who are devoid of the Spirit and those who are indwelled by the Spirit through Jesus. Two things that Paul says here about the Spirit. I'll say them briefly. Number one, if I have the Spirit, I belong to Christ. Anyone, he says, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Therefore, implication, everyone who has the Spirit of Christ belongs to Him. Is that categorical? There are no second-class Christians in God's kingdom. There are those who have the Spirit. Every believer in Jesus today has the Holy Spirit. He has come and indwelled us, empowered us, enlivened us, so that now we may say as the greatest privilege in all of the universe that I belong to Jesus. I'm owned by Jesus. He has written his name, as it were, on my heart. This is the first year, first time we've had to purchase school supplies for Henry. He's in kindergarten at Neshanik and loving every minute of it. And uh, one of the things that we bought for him very early on is a book bag. You have to have a book bag. And you should probably have a Star Wars book bag because Star Wars is incredible. But the problem is is that all the other kids understand because they're smart, they go to Neshanik, that Star Wars is incredible. And so how do I distinguish between my son's backpack and everyone else's? Well, I'll tell you exactly how you do that. You spend five extra dollars and you have his name embroidered on one of the the straps so that now, permanently, unmistakably, that book bag belongs to Henry. And don't you know, that when the Spirit of Christ comes and takes up residence in the life of a believer, it is as though Jesus Himself has written across the heart of that man or woman, He or she belongs to me. If I have the Spirit, I'm no longer in the flesh. My Master is no longer sin. My Master is Jesus. And secondly, if I have the Spirit, I will rise. The flesh is death, but the Spirit is life. Verse 10, if Christ is in you, at one time talking about the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, the Spirit of God, then the Spirit of Christ, now in verse 10, Christ Himself, so bound up with one another, is the three people of the persons of the Trinity. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. There is no more... Fearful expectation of judgment for those who are in the spirit. But there is the wonderful joy of eternal life, spiritual and physical, beyond the grave. I want to speak to you just autobiographically here for a moment. I've been talking about this to a couple people recently. And, you know, part of being a pastor, part of what comes with the territory of being a pastor is dealing with death. You walk into the room right as someone has passed away or as someone is passing. And you pray with the family. One of the things that happens over time as you experience this you know, a handful of, of times is that you begin to be desensitized to the reality of death. Last week I walked into a room five minutes after my dad had died. And I looked at a lifeless body. And the sting... A physical death was right there before me. It it haunts me. I can't get the thought out of my mind. But on the other side of it all is the fact that I saw my dad transformed by the Spirit of God, and so I know. Not that I feel, I know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt that though the body is dead because of sin, His Spirit is life. Because of righteousness, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Delivered over, Jesus was, for our trespasses. Raised for our justification. And that pattern, dear loved ones, set by Jesus, is the pattern that awaits all who belong to Him. Look at verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, If or since the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, took up residence in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit. Think about for a moment the juxtaposition there. Life, mortality. He will give life to your mortal, decaying body. And so we have hope. We can sing things like, when I reach my final day, He will not leave me in the grave, but I will rise. He will call me home because the Lord is my salvation. Tom Schreiner, a professor at Southern Seminary, says the presence of the Spirit demonstrates that believers will not be saddled with their weak and corruptible bodies forever. Our aging saints say, praise God. The Spirit is a life-giving Spirit and will overcome death through the resurrection of the body. So, a character, flesh or spirit, reap a mind. A mind set on the flesh or a mind set on the spirit. So a mind and reap a character. Death, resurrection, hope. There's a great joy when God's Word comes to us with such crystal clear black and white clarity that we have to ask ourselves the question, if in fact, as God's Word says, there are only two kinds of people in this world. The most important question that I can ask myself this morning, Mike, which one are you? You can't answer that for me, and I can't answer that for you. Your spouse can't answer that question. Your children can't answer that question. Your parents can't answer that question. Only you And a moment of honest reflection can answer that question. Where is my mindset? Am I driven by a desire to fuel the lusts of the flesh? Do I trample underfoot the law of God? Do I live with an open hostility and rebellion, indifference to Him? If the answer is yes, then today, dear friend, is the day of salvation. If, like Paul, I can say I'm not what I once was, but by the grace of God I am what I am, the Spirit has enlivened me and changed my desires and my affections. I've been converted and changed. Well, then what awaits you is this lovely, beautiful, priceless, resurrection hope. There's only one way to have a hope like this. And His name is Jesus. You trust Him. Submit to Him. Bow before Him. Confess Him as your everything. Not merely your Savior, but your Lord. The One who lifts up your head. The satisfier of your soul. The One who transfers you from flesh to spirit. And if so, well... Verse 13 tells us we've got a debt to pay out of grateful obedience, living according to the Spirit rather than the flesh. You believe in this, Jesus. I pray that You do. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we come before You having heard from Your Apostle telling us that if we sow a character, we reap a mind, and if we sow a mind, we reap a destiny. We've also heard of how hopeless we are as we are stuck in this character of being of the flesh. And so, apart from Jesus, our minds are set on the things of the flesh. We're hostile, not neutral. We do the right things for the wrong reasons. We refuse to submit to your law. In fact, we find that we cannot despite our best efforts. And so it's our great need for you to come and by the Holy Spirit to sow a new character within us to save us from our flesh and our rebellion and bring us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And we bless you that you long and love to do that. So for those of us who know Jesus, we pray that today You would help us to go further into this resurrection hope that we have. Yes, we die, but yet again we live. Jesus Himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though He dies. So we pray for those of us who are here this morning who just continue over and over again to try and establish their own righteousness, their own obedience, and are hoping against hope that somehow at the end of the day the scales tip in their favor. We pray that You would help them and press upon them by Your Spirit that that's impossible. What You demand is absolute perfection and righteousness, and that You provide that only in the person of Your Son. Lord, we thank you for how secure we are in your spirit. There is no condemnation. There will never be any separation. You love us. You're for us. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.